Hello everybody and welcome back to our series on Romans. Now I would love it if you have a Bible handy, please turn to Romans chapter 7. But while we are turning there, I want to get into a little bit of hermeneutics. And I know your first response is Herman who? Hermeneutics is the art and science of interpreting holy scripture. It is how we read the Bible, how we understand what the Bible is saying, and, well, how we go about applying that. How we form theology from interpretation, from the Bible. When we read Romans chapter 7, I want you to keep in mind two golden laws of Lutheran hermeneutics. How Lutherans interpret the scriptures. Law number one is the Bible means what it says. If you hear anybody from any denomination trying to tell you, no, this passage does not mean what it sounds like it means, look at that individual with extreme suspicion. If they purport to be a teacher or interpreter or pastor or whatever, if anybody is telling you, well, the verse says this, but what it really means is this. A good example of this, in the Gospel of St. John, when the woman was caught in adultery. In fact, let's go ahead and turn there. Let's keep our fingers here in Romans 7. A great, great, great example of this is John chapter 8. If we turn real quick to John chapter 8 and we start in the first verse, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, that passage is controversial. Why? Because certain people of a certain persuasion have said, well, actually, Jesus is in full agreement with the law here, and what he should have done under normal circumstances, because he has no sin, is throw the first stone at her. Jesus should have stoned her to death, of course. Now, that's honestly what some people are saying here instead of picking up on what Christ is saying. Now, the Lutheran study Bible, in following the plain meaning of the text, they read from 753 to 8 verse 11, the scribes and Pharisees failed to trap Jesus by requesting a hasty judgment against a woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus reveals the hypocrisy of his detractors and calls them to self-examination, even as he calls the sinful woman to consider her error. The Lord's greatest desire is to deliver us from sin through repentance and faith rather than condemn us for our sins. 
Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, even the worst of us, by his sacrifice on the cross. And a little prayer, O Lord, be merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Amen. Now, R.J. Rush Dooney. R.J. 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 stone people to death, it's R.J. Who I was implying earlier, R.J. Rush Dooney likes to say, oh no. What Jesus is getting at here is that there were not any uh, witnesses for this. There weren't legitimate witnesses. In R.J. Rush Dooney's personal eisegesis of this, he says, well, what Jesus is saying is that there's no witnesses, so he just writes on the ground with his finger, and he must have been saying something about witnesses with his finger as he wrote. Therefore, um, it would, would have been totally perfectly fine to stone her to death, and that's what they should have done. Like, that's what he says. That is what R.J. Rushdoony and many Dominionists say. Now, is that what the text says? No. Is that what you're supposed to get from the text? No. Is any single word there in the text going to point you in that direction? No. So, if we are going to engage in Lutheran hermeneutics, how Lutherans read the Bible, we are going to read it, we are going to hear what it says, we are going to believe what it says. That's iron law number one. The Bible means what it says. So iron law two, then, is you do not interpret what is not there. R.J. Rushdoony and many, 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 many other people from many, many, many other denominations, what they love to do is say that they are all about sola scriptura, but when they come to a verse that they don't like, what they will say is, well, yes, it says this. But according to my calculations, according to my logic, according to what I am adding in with my head, this is what it actually says. This is where our Reformed friends get into trouble regarding the limited atonement. This is where our Roman Catholic friends get into trouble regarding uh, Mary, regarding what full of grace means. This is where our Baptist friends, the sharpest disagreement regarding the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, this is where there's going to be some issues there. Where it is the mind, human reason, and human conclusions running into the Bible and deciding, I need to go with my mind on this one. I cannot correlate it. If something does not make sense to you, According to Lutheran hermeneutics, stay with what the Bible says, even if it does not make sense. Ask for a friend to help you. Ask a pastor. Do something. Keep reading scriptures until you can cross-reference. And once you have seen the cross-references between verses and chapters, you will be able to see how the circle is squared. That said... Now we can start with this very controversial, difficult-to-understand chapter in Romans. So, from Romans chapter 7, beginning in the first verse. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, 
you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members, to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So now let's go back to verse 1, and we're going to go verse by verse to understand this. What does it mean? So we go to verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers? When we see or, that is a connecting word that we need to look back and see what is he referring to. Like we were covering last week, when we see here chapter 6 in verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, when he says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, the do you not know is a hypothetical, because he is saying this to people who understand the law of Moses. The law of Moses, those who know the law. So he's now speaking to and addressing the Jewish part of the Roman church. He says that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Meaning, how much dominion is the law going to have over somebody who is dead? It can't. Can you punish a dead body for stealing? Can you punish a dead body for blasphemy? Can a dead body even do a sin? Can it really be blamed for not doing that which it ought? Of course not. So, as St. Paul says here, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. That's what he's referring to. And he gives us an analogy here in verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, we understand that. Death is a separator. It is a separator between persons. It is also a separator between persons and institutions. If I die, I don't have to pay taxes. And sure, there's the death tax, but that's really just whatever my children inherit, them having to pay tax on that. If I die, I cannot be held accountable to the law anymore. Now, indeed, my spirit will persist, and I am accountable to God for what I did in this life. But that is not the law holding me accountable. That is God holding me accountable. That's where our eternal fate is concerned. And that is not judged based on the metric of law or not law. That is judged based on the metric of faith. Did you believe in Jesus Christ? 
when you die, the law does not apply to you. He's getting there. That's what his analogy illustrates. That is what he says outright in the first verse. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And again, an illustration, if you're married and your spouse is not dead, but you shack up with somebody else, you are an adulterer, even if you think you married that person. If you're a bigamist, you're an adulterer. If you are a widow or a widower and you marry somebody else, you are not an adulterer or adulteress. That's what he's getting at. Death is the separator here. So then we continue in verse 4, and what does St. Paul say? Likewise, or in just this same fashion, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, this whole sentence needs to be broken down. It is a summary of everything that he says in the rest of the pericope here. So likewise, in the same fashion, he says, just as law is only applicable to somebody so long as they are alive, and just like that woman who is freed from the law of marriage, the law of, hey, if you cheat on your spouse or if you are with another spouse while you're already married, you are an adulterer. He says, just like that, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Well, when did I die? When did I die? I look back to chapter 6 when he says in verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would be no longer enslaved to sin. You died at the moment of your baptism. We went over this earlier a few episodes ago talking about baptism, but that is when you died. And if you died, you died to something. You died to your sin, certainly, but it also says here, St. Paul is adding in verse 4, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. It is Christ who gave up the ghost at the cross. He gave up his body for you. In your baptism, you are united to Jesus in his death for the sake of receiving the same resurrection as him. Not only do you die to sin, but you also die to the law, the law, the Ten Commandments, and the law of Moses. Now, he says there's also another purpose to this. He's adding, he's building on what he said in chapter 6, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, this is going to bring us to the question of what's the fruit? How do we bear fruit? What, what is this fruit that we're speaking of? Because if I do not have the referent of the law, if I do not have that reference point, well, what is this fruit? Great question. 
we are going to go here, keeping our finger in Romans chapter 7, going to Galatians. We're going to go to the book of Galatians here, chapter 5. And he says in Galatians 5, I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, more like practice such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit, and he uses the word fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When St. Paul says fruit, and whenever our Lord Jesus says we bear fruit, some 10, some 30, some 100 fold, right? The only scriptural reference we have for what that fruit is, is in Galatians chapter 5, which describes a sanctification process, a perfection of character that leads to good works. So when we see here, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life in chapter 6 verse 22, he is saying that the fruit is the work of the Spirit in us, perfecting our character. And then he says in verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. We refer again to Galatians chapter 5, which gives us a picture of what that fruit for death looks like. Chaos, violence, blasphemies, schisms, etc. and so forth. But now, he says in verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We are released from the law. Now, we spent all of chapter 6 explaining why this does not mean we go join the antinomian party, the willy-nilly party. But we are no longer under the written code of the law. We have died to it ever since our baptism so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So there's a little bit of a flip here. In the law, the law demands that you do good works to serve the perfect God. The way the gospel works in our hearts over the course of our lives is the perfect God perfects us so that we want to do good works. The new obedience. We do not obey God's Ten Commandments because that is how we become Christians, or that is how we qualify to be Christians. We obey the Ten Commandments, and we want to do good and love our neighbor 
because we are Christians, because God inspires that in us. The Holy Spirit bears that fruit in us, and it is not by the written code of the law. This is extremely, extremely important. Because if you go to a denomination, a dominionist group that tells you, no, 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 everything needs to be conducted by the law of Moses in society and in our own lives, they are denying what St. Paul is writing here plainly. We are released from the law. We serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I have not seen a single convincing argument for why I should not believe what the scripture is saying plainly here. I do not have to do sacrifices. I do not have to avoid eating shellfish or bacon. I do not have to worry about where the tabernacle is. And if I let my kid watch Superbook, I am not sinning by showing him a so-called graven image. I am released from that written code. But in addition to this, we would also warn people against those groups and people who add to the written code or try to replace it. Oh, you are not under the Mosaic law. That's great. But have you seen my 700-page catechism that I would like you to follow? And if you uh, disobey it, you will be excommunicated from my most holy and apostolic church? How does that release you from the law? And why would anybody say, oh, there is a vacuum now where the law once was, so I am going to add things into it until I don't feel so empty anymore? <laughs> there are, and I'm, I'm not just talking about Rome. I know everybody's thinking, oh boy, this is, this is this pastor going hard after Rome. Sure, they do that. You can eat meat on Fridays. You can eat beef on Fridays. I don't care. I'm released from the written code of the law and I am not going to replace it with another so that I can just be under a more different law. But this also applies to those fundamentalists in the early 20th century who were like, mm, you went to a movie theater? <sighs> Sinner. Oh, you listened to Metallica? Oh my goodness, that's devil music. You need to stop. I'm going to wave my signs and picket your lawn here because you were listening to music that is not approved of, and so on and so forth. So many groups want to say St. Paul lied here, and they won't do that. They won't say he lied. Some of them will. The, uh, the people who deny that St. Paul wrote Bible, those are weirdos. I recorded them already, St. Paul versus the buttholes. But these people do not understand that what St. Paul is singing is we have virtue ethics now as Christians. Your good works come from the virtues that God instills on you. The law is still perfect, holy, and good. We will get into that especially next week when we're reading more from Romans chapter 7. But it is not the thing that controls our lives. It is there to accuse us. It is there for us to see it as a tutor. The law is there as a guide, but it is not the thing that binds me to do good works. Now, there is a question then of, well, what if Jesus told me to do something in the Bible? Is that the written code? Hmm. 
because Jesus tells us to do something, pastor, and uh, you'd better do it. So, uh, therefore, this also means that we have to obey everything in Deuteronomy. Do you see? Do you see the little switcheroo there? Jesus is my king. Moses is not. But this attempt to weasel in dominionism, to weasel in the Judaizing heresy, or uh, Roman Catholic supremacy, or anything like that, from what Christ has commanded me, is a failure to recognize the qualitative difference between when my king, Jesus Christ, tells me to do something, and when a dude in a funny hat, or a dead guy from 4,000 years ago, when they tell me to do something. Sorry, 3,500 years ago. Moses died in about 1406 BC. We have to keep in mind that God will inspire us to do good works. We study the scripture. We study the law as people who are freed from it. That is how St. Paul teaches us. It is the Holy Spirit who will inspire us and bring in all those virtues. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, so on and so forth, which will produce the good works for which Jesus saved us. Now, somebody might accuse me of being a hypocrite because we talked about astrology in an earlier recording in a long-form email answer. And I said, don't do it. The Bible says don't. But that, yes, the Bible says do not in the law of Moses. And you are free from the law of Moses. Does that permit you to suddenly go ahead and do astrology? No, not in the slightest. Because we forget that A, you should be following God's Ten Commandments because you want to. And the Ten Commandments are explained in the law for broad things like idolatry of the stars found in the divination called astrology. That is explained in the law. The law is acting as a tutor for us. But let us not get it twisted here and say, oh, I will not do astrology solely because God said not to in Deuteronomy. Ha! Checkmate, pastor. That's not how this works. The law will explain to me why you should not do astrology. The law will explain that, and I will follow what God leads me to do, which is not worshipping any other god. Not putting my fate and my trust into a bunch of dumb, burning balls of gas in the sky. That is why I want to avoid astrology or tarot cards, or, I don't know, Ouija boards. My freedom in Christ is not an excuse to sin. So, my motivations are different than they were previously. See, the thing is, the law came in. Let's look again at chapter 7. There's a very, very special clause here we need to understand. In verse 5, it says, While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now, how on earth does the law inspire somebody to sin? Very simple answer. It does not make you righteous. It will not make you a good person. You are not a good person or righteous for following the rules. You can have a black 
evil, disgusting heart and follow the rules. There are plenty of bad people who do not speed when they go driving. They don't break the speed limit. They stop at red lights. And if a emergency vehicle comes in, they do the right thing and just pull over to the side so that the ambulance or fire truck can get past them. That doesn't make them a good person. Obedience to the law, to the letter of the law, does not make you good. To the contrary, because it doesn't make you a good person, what happens to your heart? Your heart stays the same or gets worse, which is going to inspire more sin. In fact, the moment you are told, don't do this, there is a part of you that wants to do it. The mere presence of an opportunity to sin and knowing that you should not do it can bring you great temptation to do it. Don't take people's stuff. St. Paul's going to use that as an example later on of you shall not steal. Don't take people's stuff, okay? But what if I did? Hmm, don't hurt people. Oh, but I want to hurt that guy. And I know I'm not supposed to, but maybe I should start cooking up reasons in my head why that's justified. <laughs> we do this. Our sinful self does this. The law inspires that in us. We are sinners. This is a part of that. God wants to change your heart. St. Paul is getting at that. So, there's a reason why I have to put my hands in my pockets whenever I'm next to a cop. Because some psychotic part of my old Adam wants to grab the cop's gun. <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to do it. I know I'm not allowed to do it. I'm not allowed to touch an officer. But... Boy, wouldn't that be fun? You know what? I know I'm not supposed to do it, but what if I could get away with it? It's like that. That's how our sin works. And the law will not tell you or teach you or affect you in any way such that your heart is changed. That has to be done through faith in Christ. That has to be done by dying to the law, living in Christ, and the Holy Spirit coming and improving you. Now, if it sounds like this has been a 32-minute rant, that's because it kind of has been. Oh, well, sorry, guys, but I'm irritated with how badly this chapter in Scripture gets mangled by various teachers. We have to keep in mind that it means what it says plainly and then cross-reference it with other Scripture to make it clear. Amen and amen.